to Rupture Radio. We are back this week with a, a news panel to take a look at some of the, the top stories, cut through the spin, and uh, ho- hopefully find something funny amongst all the uh, existential dread and climate anxiety. Um, so I'm Kean, and t- today I'm joined by the, the most dangerous man in Ireland, uh, Dave Murphy. How you, Kean? Uh, the most knowledgeable person on the panel, uh, Diana O'Dwyer. Hi, And a uh, special guest, uh, uh, RTE Folk Music Award nominee and eco-socialist uh, Owen O'Canavan. How are you? How are things? Uh, good to have you back. Uh, um, I, how, how are you getting on, Owen? I, I hear, what is this RTE? Uh, before we get on to the heavy topics, the COP26 and the, the, the cultural death of Dublin, what is these awards that you've been nominated for? What's that all yeah, about? Um, myself and Alton O'Brien from Clare, he plays fiddle and viola, so we made an album there. Um released last year so it's up for best album and best emerging folk act as well um yeah so good uh, good crack <laughs> there's no way we can't run a like vote for owen and ulton campaign uh, or anything I, or? I don't think so i think it's uh i, I think it's it's chosen by it's i don't know rt organizes it basically but um we'll s- yeah We'll send them a signed special edition of Rupture or something, you know, just to, just to sway the audience, yeah. you know. Um, and so, uh, uh, so you've obviously, what's the, what's the name of the album again? I think we had you on when you launched your album before. Yeah, it's called Solace and Lay, so the, the Light of the Day. So it's kind of, um, it's mostly kind of old songs and uh, um, old channel songs, really. But there's a couple of, uh, one or two new ones there as well. Um, yeah, and, and so the 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 big thing that's been going on within all that folk music community, uh, um, and that I know you've been at the head head of was was the big protest about the cobblestone, uh, um, where they uh, like uh, I'm not from Dublin, so I've only vaguely heard of the cobblestone, uh, um, like as a pub with a massive trad scene going on in it. But maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what is the background to the cobblestone and how important the role it's played in that. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a, it's a been a massive kind of cultural hub for decades really and um it's uh you know it's not just about um you know uh, the pub there so there's the back room venue which is really threatened by these plans um which would have held kind of concerts music lessons dancing lessons um different singing sessions so there, there's like the night that larry got stretched which is a kind of a, a young person's kind of singing session that happens once a month there's um uh, and even then that you know you find out more like the more we're doing this campaign about the different things um going on uh like at the first protest that we had there uh, there was a woman who, who uh, spoke about traveler singing sessions that uh, she used to organize where she went to 15 different venues that all turned her away uh before she, they were you know welcomed with open arms really in the, in the cobblestone so it's that kind of a place really um yeah, and even just from a, a, a left-wing perspective, we've often done kind of fundraisers there, anti-racist uh, fundraisers, housing stuff, and um, we've always been, been welcomed there and never charged for anything or anything like that. So. And now there's the, the, the bottom line of it is that they're, they're trying to build a big giant hotel beside it, but that'll take the back room or that'll take the music venue yeah, park or something, is it? it? It's basically going to engulf the, the front bar in a nine-story hotel. Um, so... The, uh, it looks like the back room would be gone. Uh, it would leave the front bar the fr- uh, intact, but obviously plonk a big kind of a hotel up around it and uh, beside it. Um, as well as that, it's not just about. I suppose you know along alongside that, there's um, so that uh, the the building beside all of that, there's a, a big Georgian building as well uh, that's been restored um, and obviously completely changed the character of the street apart from anything else. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the cobblestone itself as a, as a kind of a cultural 
hub that would uh, pretty much, I, I think, destroy it as as as, as uh, what it is now. I'm sure it'd be marketable to tourists because you could still say, you know, come and stay at the famous cobblestone hotel, <laughs> whatever it is. So, uh, and I think it's kind of really. Um, who, who needs actual yeah. amenities and things of use to people when you can just have something to put yeah. on a tourist brochure? You know? Exactly, and it's just it's that kind of thing of um, leaving enough of a thing there, a husk of a thing there to be marketed, uh, but then it's not actually the same kind of living, breathing thing that uh, we know it as and, and that people actually from the area um, to hold dear, I suppose. Yeah. And this is part of a whole broader trend. Uh, there was the Merchant's Arch as well. Um, obviously, I know lots of people are upset as well about chapters closing. Um, uh, uh, and it just seems like there's a, a deterioration of the, the, the cultural life of, of Dublin as it stands. Yeah, yeah. I, I could name out, out a bunch of them, like Save More Street. Somebody from that campaign spoke at the last uh, demo there. Uh, for example... Um, I think it's it's basically. I mean, it's just that, that the model that we have is obviously a you know developer led model, a profit driven model, and uh, it means that pretty much anything is up for grabs. Um, it's you know stuff is built for profit, and the people that live here don't really you know have any. There's no democracy around it whatsoever. People don't have any kind of say in it, and um, yeah, I think. Um, uh, I think that's why the, the the campaign has been so important, really, is because there's so many people standing up and, and fighting back, and uh, I think they kind of see it as a as a much broader issue than just the cobblestone itself, as well. So, yeah, I was listening to the Irish Times podcast, and they mentioned like I oh, wasn't at the protest. I know you were, so maybe you can say if this is real or not. But like they were saying that like this issue, like it's not a standalone issue about like cultural spaces, but it's about like the nature of Dublin and that like. Um, like we've obviously seen all the hotels going up, uh, but on the other hand, you have like the housing crisis, and that's feeding into it. And like the, the like the the development of hotels and all these like cultural spaces, or the shutting down of cultural spaces, is just like like the final kind of like fuck you to like everyone who's suffering because of the housing crisis. And was that like part of the protest or? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the main kind of slogan was "homes, not hotels; culture, not vultures." And I think even just looking at even that small area, like where I'm living, um, uh, I'm in Dublin Seven. Like you know, you, you go up the road. There's O'Devany Gardens, which was sold off for you know to private Bartra, I think Bartra Capital uh, for uh, you know to build uh, unaffordable, affordable housing, um, uh, which you know obviously most people won't be able to. Uh, to live there, and now they're, you know, since the, since it's gone ahead, they're they're adding on more houses. They're not going to be up to to actual <laughs> spec and all the rest of it. You know, you go down to the cobblestone. There's you know, a cultural hub being destroyed, and then obviously in between those two places is uh, is is Sunnyvale, the, the 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 squat that was kind of being turned into a bit of a cultural centre as well by the people who had kind of basically commandeered an empty space uh, and then were violently evicted. So I think all of this is. Um, Kind of ties into the the, the same thing, uh, and I think people do see that. Um, uh, people definitely do make the connections. They they're, they obviously want to save the cobblestone, but I think there is a kind of a wider fight for the the heart of Dublin and for the people that live here as well. Right up in that, and like for 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 like say artists and musicians like yourself, and like like the like I'm not really into the cultural scene. Like I grew up in Talla, and town was just a place I went into for like going for a few points when I was younger or protests or whatever. But like. What other facilities are there, like, like on the podcast I listened to, I said that, like, after the crash, when property prices dropped, that, like, there was 
venues that were used, like because there was no money to make in terms of like redevelopments being cancelled, um, that like venues are like used cheaply or available cheaply, like for artists or community groups. But now that these are closing down, so like with like say the cobblestone gone, what would be the alternatives? Like, would it be going in and like paying a couple of hundred quid for a room for a night or? Like, it'd be more, like, corporate and, like, private. There's definitely less... Um, there's definitely not anywhere like the cobblestone that would kind of... Um, you, you know, at the moment, I, I, I don't think... There's, there, there are kind of some venues around the place, but no, nothing that has that kind of... Um, that's that kind of cultural hope for, for, for folk musicians, I suppose, around, around, around the area. Um, and, um, yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of the spaces are, are being kind of taken away and, and, and um, the kind of um, we're losing a lot of the kind of opportunities that we, that we had before to, to kind of get together to play and all the rest of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, what would be there instead? Um, it's hard to, it's, it's actually kind of hard to say it's not, not the cobblestone one is pretty irreplaceable. And there's other, there's obviously other places that are, you know, that are you know good music venues and that kind of thing um, that we would play in and we would you know but it doesn't have the same kind of it's all, that wouldn't be like a, a kind of a cultural centre almost like which is what the cobblestone is and, and like last year or the year before there was the thing with the what was the other pub the Bernard Shaw closing down and there was like a reaction to it like so like but I don't think it mobilised in like a protest the way the cobblestone um, has but like so like what is the like difference between like the reaction this time and and the reaction then? Like I I like I'm sure there's like major differences in between what the Bernard Shaw was and what like the Cobblestone was in terms of like a place to play, etc. And like being like they are both kind of landmark places. Like you know, um, why is there this big reaction this time? Is it like related to the house and stuff? Like definitely, or is it like this place holds like a special place? I, I think it's a combination of both. I think um, there's definitely a massive musical community there in Dublin that, you know, that would be kind of the, probably the most important pub, like going back, you know, um, go back for, for decades. There there are others, of, of course, that are, you know, the people playing and, and, and that kind of thing. This one has, has that kind of longest history and, and that kind of thing, and it has that back venue as well. Um, but I, I do think then there's the a second, you know, the, you know, there's a lot of people just from around uh, Stony Batter, Smithfield, that community who've come out and to you know who aren't musicians or whatever, but support the kind of culture um, or support or, you know want the pub to be there in uh, intact. Um, and as well as that, then there's people who are, who kind of are for whom it's the kind of straw that broke the camel's back in terms of all the kind of developments that are going on. So I, I think it's a kind of a coalescing of all these different uh, factors from the culture side to the kind of local importance of it to the you know the housing uh, st- uh, aspect uh, uh, as well and just the general kind of uh, malaise in the, the the city like when it comes to planning and, and development yeah I think there's a broader issue just in Ireland in general in relation to nightlife that like all of the fun is being sucked out of the country and out of Dublin in particular like the amount of pubs that have closed down there's been near 1849 pubs across the country have closed since 2005 which is just huge like that's loads of little small pubs and towns and villages like sucking the heart the heart being kind of ripped out of um, communities and just a much greater level of like atomization and loneliness and like people just not having 
somewhere to go just to go for like a few pints like you know in their local area um, and that's been really added to like since the start of the pandemic and the lockdown they reckon there's about 350 pubs that have closed that won't reopen and like mostly these are not the big kind of corporate pub hellholes like you know it's not Wetherspoons like that's opened up in Dublin it's small little pubs that have real character that are really like community facilities like around the country mostly that are closing down and the system they have like is um, that one of the reasons why a lot of the pubs close down is that if you want to open an off license you get a license and you you can get that by buying a license off a pub that's closing down somewhere around the country. So you've having this concentration of off licenses in the bigger towns and cities leading to more atomization, people drinking at home on their own rather than, you know, doing having a more social kind of outlet. And the same thing with nightclubs, like nightclubs is even worse, actually. Apparently, there's only like about 100 nightclubs left now in the whole country, whereas in 2000, there was 100 nightclubs in Dublin and another 422 nightclubs in the rest of the country. So, I mean, that's just a huge cultural shift in terms of places for people to go and have fun like and you know enjoy enjoy life um, and it's really like kind of capitalism encroaching on that and rearranging space um, to whatever makes the most profit regardless of you know how that impacts on people's lives so it's why we're getting a much more soulless Dublin and we're having a much more soulless like you know kind of towns and villages around the country as well and that, like as Owen was mentioning there, there was a brief kind of period after the last crash that you had a sort of an opening up of space because um, there was this massive property crash and there was loads of office blocks and stuff even being temporarily let out for people to put on um, kind of, um, you know, dance nights or like DJ nights and stuff like that. And people were having parties in like abandoned spaces and there was a kind of a reclamation of private space to public space. And now that process has been completely reversed again with all the vulture funds moving in just buying up um, all the property and investing in hotels and office blocks and driving up the cost of housing for people, you know. I saw that meme of like Owen Keegan's vision of the future of Dublin. It's just everybody living in hotels and the only bookshops, there's no bookshops, there's no pubs, whatever, it's just hotel pubs and you just read the, the little pamphlets available in, in at reception and, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, that is uh, his cultural vision for uh, uh, um, Dublin. But but maybe to, just You have to kayak there as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Did you see that when when Owen Keegan wrote that letter to UCD Students Union about oh why don't you build your own uh, uh, student accommodation and some, somebody said why don't all these kayakers just come together and build their own kayak club or kayak um, <laughs> private white water rafting uh, facility? But anyway, uh, what was I saying? Just connected to what Diana said. Maybe is to, to move on to the. The eviction, the Sunnyvale uh, community centre, or uh, uh, that the uh, squat that they had that was being kicked out, that was kicked out by uh, uh, the private landlord and the the guardie, because it's kind of connected to that same thing, which is that like a group of people had taken what was a disused building that the developer was sitting on and was was turning it into a place to provide accommodation for people, a bit of a community heart as well, uh, um, and obviously not only did the did the landlord react against that but like uh, the state completely backed it up they had a 7am dawn raid Jobstown uh, uh, style uh, um, they had 20 or so Gardaí uh, seven squad cars and they even had one of the Garda helicopters in the sky backing up what was it seems uh, or it's alleged it was an, an, an illegal uh, an illegal eviction like I don't know if people saw all the details of this but the the 
the Gardaí talked about, oh, well, we were just enforcing a court order. Um, but it turns out that that court order that they were enforcing was from like three years ago. And it wasn't against the current tenants whatsoever. It was against like, uh, 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 it was against the landlord, actually. Uh, um, so like, uh, yeah, that, like this, it screams of an illegal eviction. And I don't know, people may have seen ICCL as well without saying that like, actually the Gardaí have no role. These are in any of these things. These are private, uh, um, civil matters uh, of evictions and the Gardaí should not be there whatsoever. But it just goes to show like uh, um, which side the, the guards are on and which side the state is on, you know? Oh, and you were up at the protest at one stage, right? Well, yeah, well, I mean, I actually I wasn't at the... I was at kind of in the aftermath of the evasion. I, I went up for, for a while. It's actually just up the road from for where I am, I am. So I know a couple of people um, living there. But yeah, I mean, it was completely brutal what, what they did. Um, you know, they went in with crowbars, baseball bats and all that kind of thing. And they completely... Like, when when, when you see the, the inside, they completely destroyed the place through paint and the stuff they you know people there was a couple of people who had vans there who were living in those vans in, on the inside in the courtyard as well and whose vans got they broke the windscreens on them like it was just coming musical instruments broken as well like it was just um just complete kind of um destruction and and, and destroyed pipes as well um uh, just basically the, the aim was, was to go in and and, and make it um un, unlivable I, I think and um you know, and then you look at who's behind it as well, like the property developer um, uh, themselves. Uh, it's uh, uh, McGrath Group, and um, they, you know they've they've <laughs> kind of a, a history of um, unlawful evictions and overcharging rent and all that kind of stuff. Like um, at one point, they were um, uh, they were fined, found they had to pay um, eleven grand to these tenants because they had been they had. Um, Unlawfully raised their rent uh, from um, from I think twelve hundred and fifty a month or something up to two thousand or something like that. Uh, so just an incredible kind of uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they're you know <laughs> they're they're not nice people. Put it that way. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and, and I think the the, the 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 place is obviously it's it's they've got a planning permission for a, a built to rent there one hundred and sixty six apartments. Uh, who knows when that would have been started? Of course, um, when when they would have started building those or anything like that. But um, you know, again, it's. But do you think you think that, that place North? What was the other one? North Frederick Street. A couple of years back, um, that they similarly guys went in, backed up what was a brutal eviction, and that building is still sitting empty. It is three or four years on, you know. Uh, um, so, like, th- what this is really about is defending private property, defending the rights of private landlords and property developers to just sit on vacant buildings that like uh, their right to own something is greater than uh, uh, your right to a home or your right to somewhere for to somewhere to sleep like you know yeah did you see as well your man the mcgrath group the owner of the mcgrath group um turns out is a of course this being ireland is a is a finifold donor as well you know so um, it seems if you ever if you're ever in trouble getting the guards around to your area, the 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 best thing to do is just phone up and say you're a Finnafall donor, and there's there's evic- anti eviction protesters outside your house, and you'll get the guards down in in a second. Well, like, is a big part of this that like isn't kind of like you'd imagine like that in like a normal society, the idea that like there's the idea of like do you know what I mean? Like God, uh, like back in the day, you didn't pay your debt to sheriff or the bailiff would come around. But you seem to have these like like companies or squ- like squads of like thugs who go around like 
beating the shit out of people to evict them out of um, properties. Like, it's happened... Like, you had it at the Take Back the City thing where these lads turned up in balaclavas, like, and the guards stood back, like, well, these, like, like shock troops went in and beat the shit out of people and dragged them out, and you've had it in this case. And, like, there has been some, like, famous... um, Like, not famous, but, like stories that were in the news of like families being evicted from their home and these tough guys torn up and like it, like the guards standing back and just letting it go ahead like and I was reading a story in like the Irish Times like where the guards were saying that their involvement in evictions now was getting messy and that like the oversight bodies are worried about it but like surely you can't be like well like you know the guards going to back up the property rights but like surely like you're there and you're watching these lads go in and like smash a place up beat people up, drag them out, like, and they're just standing there going, like, we're here to, whatever, keep the peace, and, like, the peace that they're keeping is, like, like, batting away protesters, like. We're overseeing things, uh, we're <laughs> overseeing the, the violence of property relations, yeah, yeah. the inherent violence of property <laughs> relations, um, you know. <laughs> we're here to make sure uh, things don't go too far, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. See, come and see the violence inherited in the system come and see the violence inherited <laughs> in the system uh, um, no no Monty Python fans <laughs> um, uh, yeah and like obviously the, the, the protesters came back later that day and or the, the, the tenants came back uh, later that day and reclaimed the building uh, um, so they, they did get it back obviously as Owen was saying like oil was thrown all over the beds and like just the 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 the, the the enforcers did everything they could to try to make it uninhabitable. But it, it 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 is good to see people taking the place back. And fair play to the Katu in particular, who mobilised and uh, um, put out the call and got uh, people down there to, to to back it up. You know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So they did take it back. Um, we we'll see kind of what happens with it now. I mean, obviously, it's, I mean. Would take some amount of work to to get it up and running again, but uh, yeah, obviously they didn't kind of they you know I suppose they they weren't kind of beaten down completely or anything like that. They, they, I think there's there's kind of a resolve around it anyway to to try and make something of it. But you so the, but the takeaway there being as Owen said, they're they're not nice people. These are not nice people. Landlords are not nice people. Don't be they're very mean. Um, uh, so when we move on to the main big 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 story of the the week which is the COP26 uh, um, climate catastrophe uh, um, uh, fiddling while the world burns uh, um, conference. Uh, Anybody able to take us, uh, to give us a bit of an intro as to what's taking place and what's going on? Big protest, maybe this Saturday, but we're recording here on the Thursday. I'm not sure if we'll be, the the podcast may be hitting your ears whilst uh, after the protest, um, but there is also a big public meeting on Monday as well. But but anybody want to kick us off on the COP26, what's taking place? Yeah, like I think the main purpose of it um, for us as activists on the left really is as a display of how completely useless the world leaders are um, in, you know, that they're not going to do anything meaningful. They're not going to take the measures needed um, to resolve the climate crisis. And this is just really a, a lengthy demonstration of that. Um, like their pledges come into the conference, even if they were to keep all of the pledges, which are just promises. There's nothing legally in international law to enforce any of this on them, even if they kept all the pledges they had come to the conference, you'd have 2.7 degrees of warming, which would just be completely catastrophic. Like, really, we need to keep it to below 1.5 degrees. Um, so, I mean, I think that's something that kind of gets forgotten about in all the commentary on this, that like, 
even if they make great promises about stuff, there's absolutely no guarantee that they will actually keep to those promises. There's nothing making them do it. Like, really, there is no real mechanism for global cooperation because you've got a system made up of all these competing capitalist states um, who are all just trying to welch on any agreement as much as possible. They're trying to get away with emitting more carbon individually, let the other country do it. And like, that's very much been the attitude of Ireland. Like, one of the most high profile pledges to come out of this was there's supposed to be um, a 30% cut in methane globally by 2030. Um, and the Taoiseach announced that Ireland was, woo, we're going to sign up to this global pledge. But then the next day they're saying, well, we're pledging to that globally, but in Ireland we're only going to cut by 10%. So other countries can do most of the work on that. And I think that's just really... It, encapsulates the whole thing in a nutshell um, is like all of these um, particularly the bigger capitalist powers who are the most responsible for this climate crisis in the first place who created most of the carbon emissions just trying to minimise their responsibilities as much as possible and say hey look over here at China and India they're not doing anything so if they're not doing anything then like why should we do anything you know um, and like, they've been at this shite like really for you know 30 years at this stage since the first Rio Earth Summit in 1992 um, and I think at this stage like everyone should be aware that this kind of international diplomacy is a complete waste of time. Like they're not going to do anything unless they're actually forced to do so by, you know, large mass movements of people power in every country around the world. And I think you could really see that frustration coming from people like Greta Thunberg, um, who like was filmed singing, you can shove your climate crisis up your arse, like at the world leaders, as in, you know, if they just talk, 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 she's saying blah, blah, blah. Like they go on and on about the climate crisis, but they're the ones who could actually do something about it um, by putting limits on, on corporations and um, particularly in terms of um, fossil fuel emissions, you know, um, but they're just not doing nothing. They just talk about it. Um, um, so I think it's, it, you know, its main function is as kind of a wake up call to the world that there's nothing coming from on high, like um, people are going to have to get active on this issue. I thought that um, obviously the, you can shove your climate crisis up your ass is very reminiscent of. I remember the, the water charges. You can shove your water meters up your ass. Do you remember that? Um, yeah, and and in, in the trial, John Bourne. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So John Bourne was asked where people when people were protesting at our car in Jobstown, uh, were they not? like doing political chants and she claimed not to hear any political chants even though they had video of people doing loads of sorts of chants and then like um, they played a video where people were like chanting you can stick your water meter up your arse and she was saying that's not a political slogan but then she said it would be a human rights abuse if someone were to attack a person in that way like to, <laughs> to physically try and attack them with a water meter um, hilarious <laughs> there's, a, there's a play in that trial like you know someone should make yeah. a play of it like you know that's where you, for those that un, 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 unfamiliar, when I introduced Dave as the most dangerous man in Ireland, it's because he was uh, called that by the, the village or the Phoenix or something like that. The Phoenix, wasn't it? After after the Jobstown trial for his reporting from the court. Uh, um, uh, uh, but yeah, no, anyway, on the, on the call, I thought Greta's stuff was like... It was very good, like, you know, what she said in terms of she was talking about how, like, the change that we need is not going to happen inside the conference. Uh, um, it's going to be people on the street, uh, um, such as the protest that's taking place th this week uh, and across the, the country, you know. Uh, but I, I agree. I think, like, that that's that's the kind of change that we need on this because it's clear that, like, the, 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 the governments of the world are not taking this crisis seriously whatsoever. Yeah, I think if you look at, like, so I was saying this earlier on to somebody... Um 
like so before the climate crisis this week there was the G20 meeting last week which is the meeting of the leaders of all the like the major 20 economies that like and between those economies they emit 80% of emissions so these are the big polluters and usually at the end of um one of the G20 meetings there's a statement released um but like commenting on the statement like even like even like Boris Johnson was saying how it was such a weak statement because of all these countries um they had to release this like vague statement saying um that they committed to being at or around like uh, zero net emissions uh, around the mid century so like there's this idea of getting to zero net emissions by 2050 some of them said oh well we'll do it by 2060 and then some of them like didn't even give a commitment to uh to reach it by mid century so like that's the world leaders like at the G20 and now they're on this like big major platform where like everybody is watching them there's this major protest so they're given all these like like uh you know commitments that aren't really aren't really worth anything like if people remember like just on the Michal Martin thing like uh Paris the Paris climate change agreement and all the fanfare that went with that like Enda Kenny signed up to the agreement and then like like two minutes later after he got up and he gave his big speech on the stage, he was talking to journalists and they were like, so you've signed up to all these, all these commitments. And then he said like, well, climate change isn't really a priority for Ireland because like they were more worried about getting, getting the economy going and they'll do whatever it takes to do that, you know? So like, and, that, and, and getting the economy going was inviting in all these da- uh, data centers and uh, uh, encouraging a, a massive expansion of our dairy herd and all. You know that was their economic policies. You know, which now we're seeing the the, the result of. And and I think I think as well like the, the main yeah, like when you look at all the the promises and you say, well, look, this is um, this is inadequate to begin with. Um, you know, even looking at our own carbon budgets, where they're backloading the the bulk of the emissions onto the second. So the first term we're going to do four point eight percent reductions, and the second term we're going to do eight point three percent reductions. Um, the fact, I mean, like beyond that, I mean, of course, we don't even have uh, you know the mechanisms to actually achieve even that four point eight. I don't think it's going to happen because of when you look at their actual policies. You know, it involves you know. No, no, just transition for small and medium farmers. Like, you know, just the same kinds of policies that helped the big major agri corporations, the big beef farms, and so on. You know, more data centers, all the rest of it. Um, transport. I mean, Eamon Ryan there a couple of weeks ago saying we'll need more, more people will need to take transport, uh, to use public transport before the the fares come down. Uh, the the beatings will continue until morale improves. Um, and um, and then like um, so it's yeah, like they're not going to do that. And then uh, this the whole backdrop of this is like all those talk of emission re- reductions is the, the earth is getting warmer. Even though there was with a pandemic related reduction in emissions of about five percent or so. The Earth still got warmer because you know we're still putting out more carbon into the atmosphere than, than we're 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 bringing in, and so um, we're not even like the the action to actually begin to re- reduce this hasn't even begun in any kind of a meaningful way. And then it's all you know. Then you look at the, the conference itself, and it's like it is just theater. Like when you see Jeff Bezos flying in. Uh, on a private jet to talk about the fragility of the earth and all this kind of thing. And he said he's going to, you know, spend two billion on, on the climate crisis, you know, which is fucking pocket change for him. Um, not to mention what the hell is he going to spend it on? Like, it's not, you know, he's not going to spend it expropriating himself, put it that way. 
Um, he's not. Is, so. is he not offered to donate to PVP? No. See Boris Johnson speak. So Boris Johnson came up with this idea that we're at like one minute to midnight. You know. And that, like, we have to act now. So, like, building up the drama, like, you know. And I was reading an article saying, "Well, look, when it was when it was ten minutes to midnight, you were Johnson was going around writing articles about, um, like, slagging windmills and climate change isn't real. What do we expect to have, like, a country full of windmills?" And then he comes out with this analysis or analogy comparing, like, the situation to like a James Bond film, like, you know, and that James Bond is tied to uh, a doomsday device with a red digital clock ticking down in the corner, you know. And that weird, you know, we're James Bond now and we need to get, like, the Bond-type spirit, like, you know. And, it, like, it made me think he probably hasn't watched a Bond film in about 30 years if he thinks, like, that's still the storyline of a James <laughs> The red digital clock ticking down in the corner, like, you know. And then, and then the camera cuts to Biden and he's asleep. Yeah, he's having a nap, 40 winks. <laughs> all, all, the pro, all the pros have a nap, as we, as we all know well. <laughs> but... The uh, sorry, there's the the doll bells are chiming uh, in the background here. So sorry about that. But the the whole Bond analogy, do you cut the red wire or the blue wire? But the problem is that they're signing us up for these uh, ISDS, these like investor courts, which means if you cut the the red wire or whichever wire you're meant to cut, like big red wire is going to sue you and say, oh well, you can't you can't be cutting, you can't be uh, uh, banning coal uh, uh, production, you can't be banning data centers, you can't be doing X, Y, Z because they're signing us up for these courts that like will allow investors to sue governments that actually take meaningful climate action you know yeah well there was there I don't was know a, if that analogy made any <laughs> sense whatsoever <laughs> there, there, there was a whistleblower who came forward recently um, so there's this what they're calling like an obscure treaty like the more like publicly known versions of them will be like CETA and like previously the US trade agreement so there's this like treaty the energy energy charter treaty which kind of like sets the rules between states and and like companies in terms of like how they do how do you business so a whistleblower who's come forward who was on the secretariat of this energy charter like so they're in, involved in running it but they're also a member of the ipcc the international panel on climate change so they're saying that like over the last decades 2011 to 2019 there's been a 269 percent increase in cases taken by companies against governments in investor courts linked to this treaty um, because the governments are taking action to prevent climate change. So they have a couple of examples here. So uh, in Holland, they're moving to get rid of like coal by 2030, like so coal mines. But because they're doing that, uh, a German company, RWE, a British company, Uniper, um, are taking cases in these investor courts to go and like sue the Dutch government for about two billion. Uh, in Italy, Italy banned like offshore oil drilling very close to the coast, and like again, these investor courts under this treaty are being used to take them to um to court and sue them. So you have a situation where like this whistleblower uh, Yamina Sabib, I think the name is, is saying that between now and twenty fifty, private companies could take. Using these secret investor courts, and when she's given figures, these are just cases that are known in these investor courts because they're very secretive. So, like, there's potentially a case in there with the Irish government over the stuff around um, trying to stop, like, uh, the offshore oil drilling and, and all that type of thing. Um, but that they could, private companies could take governments to court and get 1.3 trillion between now and 2050. And the effect that that will have is that, like, there's obviously the chilling effect on governments then taking necessary action like banning fossil fuels etc 
Um, so that's one aspect. But also the other aspect is all these cases for loss of profit that these companies are going to do, um, despite the climate change crisis, will be paid for out of public funds. So like 1.3 trillion um, will be taken. Like that's that's more than enough for like a, a Green New Deal, like, you know. Uh, but this will be removed from public funds, go into the pockets of these fossil fuel companies and then prevent like states like like who remain under capitalism, states using public funds to try and um prevent uh, or to take like climate change measures. Um and like I think that just shows like why like I know like last week or the week before there was a court ruling in Ireland about saying that CETA is constitutional, um, even though it has like these investor courts built into it. Like and I think that adds to the argument when look at this is the um this is potentially where, where it ends up like and again like one point three trillion is a massive huge amount of money that you could do quite a lot with. Uh when you think that developing countries have only pledged like a hundred billion to you know underdeveloped countries to fire climate change measures. Yeah. I I think like what Dave is saying they I mean just coming back on the, the point of on CETA being constitutional and of course like Patrick Costello from the Green Party brought a court case about that to see whether it's constitutional or not and obviously you know now apparently apparently it is um, uh, but then you know the question is like what do you do that with that like will will, will Costello now vote against that that in the doll or is it okay because oh actually you know this is this isn't against the law so we'll, we'll, we'll be alright with it um, and I, I think um uh, the the only answer really is when you know that is the kind of mass movement. And hopefully we're, we're you know we're, we're we're ahead of the protest here. Probably when this comes comes out, we hopefully we'll be on the back of a major kind of mobilization, global mobilization um, across the world. Really, and I think that's where the kind of the hope for um, any kind of a future is. It's not going to be the kind of theater that we have from the global kind of leaders. Um, and it's definitely not from uh, the kind of um, the capitalists themselves kind of coming up with new innovative ways, as they say. I mean, there's a, again, there's a KPMG report there talking about how um, uh, the um, well, uh, the, uh, talking about how uh, we are going to need innovation. Yeah, sorry, the green innovation hub would be a platform to bring together investors, capital scientists, and industrial players to catalyze large-scale climate climate action. It's like that's just not gonna that's not gonna what it, it's total greenwashing it's not what's gonna um make any kind of a change um and i think when we do actually start pushing back against these things uh, like and you know there will be legal action and all the rest of it the, what will beat it back the only kind of hope we have of beating, beating it back is kind of people power mass movements uh, and that kind of thing um because it's it's just um you know otherwise we're we're fairly effective like, you know the other one I was looking at there was just related to, and we we're just talking about the, the kind of the legal action, but it's not that long since um, Stephen Donziger. Have you heard heard of Stephen Donziger? He's yeah. um, um, he's a, a an indigenous rights, rights campaigner, lawyer. Um, he he basically he spent kind of decades battling against Chevron over pollution in the Ecuadorian rainforest, um, and the, um, the the Chevron were ordered to pay nine point five billion to uh, the indigenous people basically to, to for the damages that in the Ecuadorian courts they won in 2011 there was a, a civil case then where the US um, the Manhattan judge basically bar, um, barred enforcement of the 9.5 billion and like since then he's been completely um, 
hounded and uh, and persecuted. He was um, disbarred from practicing law. This is a, a, a Donziger um, uh, in New York last year. Um, he was found guilty. Basically, there was this kind of attempt to to smear him and to um, to shut him up, basically. And he ended up kind of doing spending two years in um, court court ordered home confinement. And eventually was sentenced there last month to um, to six months in prison. So um, just it's all kind of trumped up stuff that the corporation did, just kind of basically to punish him for um, for actually trying to oppose what they were doing. Um, basically, try to dismantle his, his life and and um, uh, turn him into kind of a weapon of intimidation against the the legal pr- profession. Um, so yeah, he's just gone in to prison there now uh, to, for for a six month sentence. Um, but he's already. I mean, I think it's probably probably a relief for him because he had a he was confined at home for two years with no kind of end in sight really uh, in the to that to that case. Like, um, yeah, I was just yeah. going to say like um, there's a, sort of this underlying problem. I think the whole way that you know what limited action they're that governments are taking um, is conceived of like. Um, the government's climate action plan is being published later today. Like, and I just saw the two headlines in the Irish Times reporting about what's going to be in it are that they're going to electrify public transport and that they're going to phase out fossil fuel heating from being installed in public buildings. And that just really just shows how limited their view is of what the state can do. Like, you know, <laughs> like we can change things a little bit in terms of public services that we're directly responsible for. And also, you know, we can bring in carbon taxes and ordinary people. But basically, we only control what the state does directly in a limited way and we can kind of nudge individual behaviour through taxation but like we can't touch the corporations we can't you know nationalise fossil fuels we can't expropriate wealth in order to rearrange the whole economy um, for an eco-socialist Green New Deal so it's these big massive things they need to do but that all means like taking on the power of corporations and they just want to limit the sphere of what this really neoliberal view of what the state can do um, to just like influencing individual behaviour a bit and putting it back in individuals but like I think people are really sick of that at this stage um, that there was that opinion poll during the week there in the journal asking people you know what do you think the balance is kind of between individual behaviour um, and what states should be doing or what corporations can be doing there's some really interesting answers in there I think yeah like I think the lesson of all of this stuff is that we can either have capitalism or we can have an inhabitable a habitable planet like you know you can't have both uh, um, and if we continue with this like reliance on the private sector uh, um this control over the economy by like f- private for profit companies uh, um then like we are we are doomed we are on this inevitable path towards like extinction it seems um, and this conference i like i agree really, Owen used the phrase of like political theater and it is like i was looking they had in 1992, there was like the Earth Summit, which was like a similar kind of conference, uh, um, 30 years ago. And that also made similar big, gathered loads of people together, made big claims about how, oh, we're now going to tackle the climate and we're going to stop polluting the world. We're going to protect our, the Earth, you know, and like every year since for those 30 years, the situation has gotten worse, you know. They 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 will be willing to speak and make big claims about how great things will be, 
but there's a, a, a fundamental problem which is that destroying the planet is in the interest it's, it profits um, a huge section of big businesses and like when you're talking about bills such as the breeds bits keep it in the ground bill um, if that was which is what you need you need to like refuse to and uh, stop extracting these fossil fuels just doing that just keeping those fossil fuels in the ground has a huge opportunity cost for some big big oil companies you know so I think we have that sort of that sort of socialism or barbarism choice facing us you know yeah and, and they're they're planning on extracting it all I mean and they're you know if you look at what their plans are they're constructing all the new oil rigs that they're constructing are being constructed several meters higher than they need to be because they know there's going to be sea level rise and they don't want the sea level rise to uh, wipe out their investments and you can kind of see that across the board it's like, once you invest in fossil fuel infrastructure it's not like you're not going to just dismantle it for the you know for the hell of it like uh, there's a reading there that like two-thirds of coal plants in the u.s uh from the that were uh, built in the 1890s are still operational so like when you you know if you look at like the lngs they want to bring in here like that's stuff that's gonna when we say like that's gonna lock us into fossil fuel use for de- decades like it is like it's either lock us into fossil fuel use for decades or take on a major corporation and wipe out their investment completely you know and and you know within that you can decide to like wipe it out and not give them anything because they've done enough damage or you know you get sued or decide to pay compensation and pay a load of money that could be used you know investing in green jobs or, or whatever like so we should take uh, a thatcher and send her over yeah. to the u.s she'll have those coal mines closed in no time you know <laughs> <laughs> Cold oh, plants sorry, sorry. Either, rather than mines, I think. I'm sure she hated them. I'm not sure where they're getting Okay, so we leave it there. Uh, thanks a million to all our guests, and in particular, th- thanks uh, Owen for uh, joining us. We'll have you on your your next big when you win the awards. We'll we'll uh, get you back on. Uh, um, and thanks also to our supporters on on Patreon, um, who make this possible with their support. And if you aren't already supporting us on Patreon, please c- come on, get get with us. Uh, uh, so you can sign up for. As, as little as 250 a month and help us keep this show on the road as well as getting advanced access to the interviews and a say in what we do next and who we interview next and what other panellists we should bring on. And we also will have our first ever in-person live podcast show coming up in December uh, hopefully in Connolly Books and Temple Bar dates to be confirmed soon and our Patreon supporters will be able to come along on the night meet the guests, meet the panellists uh, um, have a drink, have a chat uh, um, as well as see a live uh, recording of the podcast. But okay, we leave it there now. So bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.